Welcome to the Directors UK podcast. This episode comes from our first man Q&A, where the film's director Damien Chazelle spoke to Charles Sturridge about his approach to research, recreating outer space and capturing the character of Neil Armstrong. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave us a review. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm welcome to Damien Chazelle. Thank you, guys. Thank you. So, Damien, your first three films were very clearly personally connected to you and to your love of music, amongst other things, but also stories that were very close to you. This is a piece of history. How big a change was that, and, w- and was that a conscious decision, or I mean, what what drew you to that change of mode? I th- uh, it was um, well, you know, I mean, a little happenstance actually at first, because it, it just uh, you know it happened to be the two producers who uh, who I had uh, uh, known a little bit. Actually, three producers. I'm sorry, Isaac Klausner, Marty Bowen, and Wick Godfrey uh, in L.A. Um, you know, approached me with this book uh, that the movie's based on, a book by Jim Hansen called First Man, about Neil Armstrong. And uh, when they first described it to me, it didn't really actually sound like anything I wanted to do, mainly because of, you know, because of what you mentioned, I mean, because it was based on real life, because it was a, a segment of history that I didn't personally feel much connection to. It, it, it just, it didn't seem to be on track with what I felt like I ought to be doing at that point. Um, this was right before I did La La Land and right after my film before that, right, right after Whiplash, yeah. and and uh, but you know I, I took the book, you know I listened to their to to you know their enthusiasm for the project. I took the book. Um, they didn't really have anything beyond the book, you know. It was just sort of what you know. They were kind of open to anything, um, right. and and I think something struck me just in the um, which is very prevalent in the book, which is uh, this kind of idea of loss. As, and loss and tragedy as, as this sort of motif, this kind of refrain in Neil's life, that it was this, uh, for a life that, was so, that is so well known today for its success, it was really a life dictated in so many ways by loss and failure. Um, and so that kind of darker side to the story um, really interested me more than I ever thought it would. And I, I kind of went back to them saying, you know, would you be interested in doing, you know, just that story, uh, and not his whole life, just the eight years between the death of his daughter and the walk on the moon. Um, and, uh, um, and, and they were game, and, and, and I was lucky enough to, to find a writer, Josh Singer, to, uh, to take, take the baton, and, and that was that. And, and was that conversation still before La La Land? Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. So Josh was off writing while I was shooting La La Land. I, I actually initially met Ryan Gosling to pitch him this movie right. uh, before, before, <laughs> before we did La La Land yeah. together. Um, and, uh, um, yeah, we, we sort of went off and did the musical first and then uh, got that out of our system <laughs> and then uh, did this. And the decision not to write it yourself, how was, I mean... Well, I mean, I, I think initially I thought I might write it myself and I think that was sort of maybe the initial conception the producers had. I just... Um, I think it was it was the at the outset. I think it was just the the type of movie it was. The the fact that um, although I enjoy writing, I I, I I would consider my forte as a writer pretty limited, pretty narrow in scope. Um, everything I'd written was very much sort of 
pulled from my own experiences. Yeah. And um, so I could write that. Um, I didn't feel like I could do justice to this. Um, and especially I also felt like I needed someone who had, you know, almost the two halves of the brain, the, the writer half or the creative writer half, but also the journalist half, the historian half, the, the that half of the brain that could go deep dive into the vaults of history and just comb through an incredibly dense subject matter. I mean, you don't get much more dense than yep. than this, just, you know, when you combine the personal and the technical uh, and and uh, just all those layers crammed into those few years. I mean, just the, the amount of research that was required. Um, I needed someone who really knew how to cut a path through that wilderness. Um, and Josh Singer, in a way, that's like, you know, he's kind of perfected, I, I think, a, a form of storytelling in that vein. Um, and uh, we were lucky because we found him right before he had written the script for Spotlight, but it yeah. hadn't gotten made yet. Because right. if it had gotten made, we probably couldn't have afforded <laughs> him. Um, uh, but luckily we caught him, you know, at a, uh, you know, before he had his Oscar, we caught him in a, in a you know, when he was uh, a little bit more of a struggling writer. We got to take advantage. And, and how, how that first script you got, how close is that to what we have just seen? Uh, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's uh, I mean, it's pretty close. You know, I, I think right at the outset, actually, before Josh went off and kind of started writing himself, we were collaborating sort of on, on outlines and kind of uh, just the, the, the broad strokes of the story. And so I think we kind of were on the same page on that yeah. level before he went off and wrote. And then he, he gave me a draft, and, and I gave notes, and he came back with another draft, and I gave notes, and we would just go back and forth and then get really into the granular. But it became this very collaborative uh, process uh, to the extent to which it, it actually, by the end, didn't feel that different from yep. when I'd kind of written by myself. Because whenever I was writing by myself, at a certain point, I was always pinging ideas off somebody. of someone else yeah. anyway. Yeah. I was yeah. sending drafts to someone. and. So in a way, it was just kind of a reversal of that process, but it was very much we were in the weeds and pinging ideas off of each other, and it became very collaborative in that sense. And can you talk about the, the relationship or the responsibility you feel to the truth? I mean, in other words, how exact you need to be to what actually happened and how that... I mean, do you feel a responsibility to history or a yeah. responsibility to your sense of what you feel happened? I do. I mean, I, I feel a huge responsibility, but th though I have to admit, I think it was a responsibility, a sense of responsibility, ability that grew as right. we, as we got further along. I think at the outset, um, you know, and maybe because it felt like more of an open canvas at the outset, it, it, the the only real barometer seemed to be, to me at least, you know, what what is going to make. What is the version of this movie that I would want to see, yeah. uh, or that I would take something from? Um, and uh, um, and so, in a way, it was kind of cherry picking history to sort of fit that vision. That narrative, yeah. um, but it's the sort of thing where, as especially because this is very much a living history, sure. you know, this isn't wasn't that long ago, and a lot of the participants are, uh, most of them even, are still yeah. with us today. Um, the more research we did, and especially the more we got to meet the actual individuals, yeah. um, you know, like Neil's family, like Neil's yeah. sons and Janet, yeah. um, uh, Mike Collins, Buzz Aldrin, people like that, the, the, the more you almost can't help but start to feel a certain responsibility. Um, I mean, Aldrin in particular is quite a complex portrait and not instantly not very charming. No. <laughs> how, I mean, how did, I mean... Uh, a, how accurate is that? Presumably accurate, but also how 
was his response and collaboration on that sort of level and well i think i mean i think it was sort of any time we knew that we were uh, which was fairly often in the movie doing something that might be touchy or might you know yeah might rub someone the wrong way or might you know be a little sensitive um those were instances where more than anything we wanted to make sure we had our our ducks in a row we yeah. made sure that we were um not inventing that we were really uh, grounding what we were doing in fact um and so, you know, certainly that applied to Buzz, but, you know, I'd say it also applied a lot to, you know, aspects of the portrait of Neil because, um, you know, Neil was someone who, uh, uh, he, he, because he became such an iconic hero, you know, there's, there's, there's many people who, you know, knew him in different parts of his life or maybe knew him tangentially or didn't know him at all but know him through history who had a certain kind of image of him or version of him in their heads. Yeah. Um, that that didn't actually wind up jiving with the 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 Neil that we sort of discovered through his family and the Neil that um, that really you know is who he was in this period of his life. This was a very specific period yeah. of his life, a very hard time in his life. Uh, he was not the easiest person, uh, which, uh, <laughs> which you've seen in the film uh, during uh, during this time in his life, um, and and he he. Uh, you know this this ability he had to uh, to kind of repress things and to sort of uh, tuck things away and maybe put things into his work that maybe he should have been trying to put somewhere else in life. You know, uh, uh, something nobody else does is that I know of. Yeah, it's very unique to Neil. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, it, it, it's it's. Uh, um, I think you know one. Uh, like one interesting thing we found, you know, for instance, is that um, many people who knew Neil well, even people who flew with him, um, didn't know uh, during the entirety of their knowing him that he had ever had a daughter, um, uh, that he had ever lost a child. Um, that's how much he sort of kept them. I mean, people who considered themselves very close to him. Um, and uh, and so I think, uh, and I think there was also a culture uh, which I think in many ways was a coping mechanism among all the astronauts at that time to, to in terms of how to deal with loss, to kind of negate it, to yeah. kind of tuck, sweep it under the rug, yeah. you know. You'd often hear stories of astronauts, you know, astronauts would often sort of, you know, s say things like, oh yeah, right, well we did have to go to X number of funerals, but anytime we were at a funeral we were just looking at our watch waiting to get back to work. Yeah. You know, it's the sort of, um, and, and I don't think it's entirely a put on because I do think, again, it was an authentic sort of uh, coping mechanism, mechanism and probably the only yeah, way yeah. that I can imagine that they were able to do what they did yeah. time and again uh, in the face of such risk and such loss. Uh, and you have to remember also, you know, all these astronauts came originally from test piloting, which sure. was even more dangerous. Yeah. And you, most of them before being test pilots were war pilots, you know. So, so these are people who became very accustomed to people to they death. knew dying yeah. all around them. Um, and so the armor you develop because of that... Um, uh, I think became very much, you know, a subject for us that we were interested in. But it also, you know, becomes a little bit of this cognitive disconnect sometimes where where uh, it, it would prove tough for us as on the research end to try to figure out exactly how a certain loss would affect the individual. And we didn't have Neil himself to talk to, but just trying to kind of get under the skin of, well, how did you guys feel about, say, the Apollo 1 fire or yep. feel about this? And and uh, to get at that raw emotion, you know, it's 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 sort of it's hard to imagine any any of these guys ever shedding a tear, um, and yet you have to assume they did. Yeah. I mean, it's just you know. Uh, uh, but you know, I remember in the script we had certain kind of 
initial responses, uh, you know, for example, when Neil's daughter dies of, oh, well, you know, Neil wouldn't have cried. Yeah. And, you know, I don't really buy that personally. Yep. Um, and so that's why we didn't follow that. Uh, but but it, there is this big difference, I think, between the way these people were to everyone else and the way and they were completely alone. Yeah, Can we just talk about a different kind of truth? I mean, um, the decision to pull away from CGI, essentially, was that driven by a desire to create a more realistic environment for the actor or by the fact that you were working on film, for example, and yeah. didn't want to use so much digital... Uh, Work. I mean, yeah, I think some of it's taste and some of it is just uh, what kind of felt like it would sort of belong to the world of this film. Yeah. I think, um, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm never sort of a huge fan of, of kind of, uh, you know, the effects where you can see the effects and, yeah. and uh, or at least see the, the synthetic nature of them or, you know, these days the, the digital nature of them. Um, I am a huge fan of, you know, old school miniatures and, and old school... Uh, Rear projection and 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 those kind of more uh, uh, you know sort of optical illusions that, that that are you know sort of tricking the eye. So you were using digital screens, ones and zeros. Yeah. Or so did I mean, you use rear, rear projection. So oh, so we we were using projection. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of the modern version of rear projection, yeah. which is LED screens. Yeah. And so we were. Um, um, so it's you know there actually is a fair amount of digital effects work in the sure. movie. It's just that it was done in prep rather than in post. Yeah. Um, so the vast majority of these effects were kind of created for playback on screens when we were prepping and we would sort of go over, okay, well, this is going to be the trajectory of the X-15 and this is going to be what you see out the window of the, you know, Gemini and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, we'd prep those, get them to where we liked, project them onto this giant LED screen, sort of wraparound screen in front of which would be a, a replica of, of the given capsule, whether yep. it was the X-15 or... Yep or a space capsule or whatnot, our actors would be inside the capsule, camera would be inside the capsule yeah. with them, and so the actors and the camera are both seen out the window what yeah. you see in the final yeah. film. And it wasn't, as opposed to green screen or something like that, yeah. where you you kind of have to use your imagination a little and bit more And what about the physicality way. of the capsule? Because obviously there's a great deal of shaking and... Well, I the mean, capsules were on uh, motion gimbal, uh, motion controls, I mean, on gimbals, basically. Yeah. So, so, uh, uh, so basically, you know, we could control, okay, you know, it, Tilts left, tilts right, up, down, shakes. Yeah. How much shake? Yeah. How much tremble? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, in some cases, you know, for for say the Gemini spin, we were able to really do full figure eights yeah. uh, uh, around the LED screens. So you could really get the full. So um, what you see in his rehearsal effect. for controlling a machine, they were actually essentially going through in some version. I mean, being thrown around. Yeah, though, though we would we would uh, uh, you know so. Not always with the actors. Yeah. So there, there, there was sometimes, you know, a <laughs> distinction between what we were shooting for the mounted to craft shots, yep. which were yep. sort of, you know, our, our exterior shots, and um, and the interior shots where, you know, we would kind of you know, uh, tailor it a little bit. But we did shake them up pretty bad. I mean, there was the, you know, uh, after the first week, Ryan had to. Um, um, you know, Ryan, who was very, you know, this the sort of full method actor that he is, was very insistent on doing a, uh, uh, the majority of this stuff himself. Um, and uh, after a week where we did the X-15 sequence and the Gemini 8 launch back-to-back -back on a soundstage with this kind of methodology, uh, apparently at the end of that week, he called up his wife, uh, who's back home, and, and, and halfway through the phone conversation, she told him, you know, you're not really making any sense. <laughs> and he took that in and uh, we had him go see a doctor and uh, and you know we were told to uh, 
basically he needed to take a rest for a week. Yeah. Um, and so we shot other stuff. But uh, so it's no joke when you sh yeah, <laughs> shake yeah. people that bad. You got to be careful. Um, but but. <laughs> You know, I mean, inside that capsule, survive. how are you operating the camera? Because obviously, there's a lot of handheld in there. Is the is, is the camera? Is there an operator in the capsule, or is there? A, uh, yeah, it, the it, it, it was a mix. Usually, yeah. when we're, uh, it was a mix because it would be usually we'd have two cameras at any given moment for capsule interiors, and so uh, either they would both be operated or one would be locked off because we could never actually fit all those operators into the capsule itself. Sure. So we'd either have you know at any given time of the sort of four sides, say, or actually six, I guess, if you're including top and bottom of yeah. a capsule, uh, you know, one side would be, so would be yeah. we'd have, you know, make sure that the uh, sides could fly off when yeah. they'd be, and so we'd have someone in there. Or uh, sometimes what, we'd, what, we, what we would do uh, is we'd have, you know, one camera being operated and then another camera locked off, yeah. you know, on a, a part of the wall or right, at, right where a window would be, basically, the camera would be there. Um, and, uh, and then other times what we would do for kind of true POV shots is, uh, our, uh, our, uh, DOP, Lena Sangren, who was operating, uh, the, the, A camera himself would just dress up in the and space be inside it and, and go inside. Yeah. And, uh, so, you know, if you look down yeah. at his knees, it would be his knees and look over at his colleague and we'd have the actor there and, you know, everything, everything would be the same except that Ryan would be swapped with the DP basically in the same right. outfit yeah. and he would shoot what Ryan would be seeing out those, those windows. So we would, we would do that as well. So to talk about the domestic scenes for a minute, um, which had a very real truthful feel, how, what, if any, improvisation were you using there? I mean, how close were you to text there and how free were the actors to find those moments? Uh, uh, there was a, a lot of improvisation in those moments. I think, um, uh, I mean, certainly everything was, uh, there. everything was, was uh, started off as scripted and then what we would do is we, we, we before we got into uh, consciously shooting scripted material. We spent about two weeks, uh, which we'd kind of carved out as rehearsal mm -hmm. weeks, basically. Um, this is before the um, whole shoot? Or? Uh, before, right leading up to the beginning of yep. principal photography, where we had the actors. We had the sets already ready. We had, we had the actors in costume um, uh, on set and, you know, in the houses, basically, that we'd built for them, and they and they kind of played family. It was, it was Ryan, Claire, and the... Uh, the kids playing their kids, mm -hmm. and they just sort of played house. And we, uh, and uh, you know, they would do improvisations, they would do games, they would, you know, I'd throw them situations, and they just kind of run with it. Often the kids would just sort of go crazy, and Ryan and Claire had to deal with it. And you know, it kind of very quickly it and stopped. And you shot being, everything. You shot all, all that. Being, was shot. Uh, fake. Um, and yeah, and we would shoot all that, and uh, uh, and so a fair amount of that is in the in the yeah. final film. So a lot of the kind of looser family stuff is actually from the, those two weeks of rehearsals. I mean, one of the characteristics of the film is is the use of kind of wide shots, not necessarily establishing a scene, but occasionally contextualizing a scene, but very, very close photography. Mm -hmm. Did you tend to, if there was a rule, not a rule, but I mean, if there's a common occurrence, to shoot the close stuff first and then go back and shoot a wide shot? Or did you essentially shoot a master first and then shoot your close-ups? I think it depended. Um, uh, I don't know. It sort of varied from scene to scene. Yeah. I, I, I think um, a lot of times we'd be sort of discovering the scene as we went, and then you know we'd only kind of after a few iterations sort of understand what the shape of the scene, at least visually or yeah. blocking wise, would be, and so then we'd kind of save the the, the wides for later. Yeah. Um, uh, we knew though in general this was going to be a movie that wanted to live in 
in in close-ups, um, uh, sort of maintaining the language of of space, even uh, outer space, even when we're, when we're when we're on the ground. When you're in outer space, outer space, you're in these tiny capsules, and so the close-ups are kind of dictated by the space. Yeah. Uh, but trying to sort of c continue that language on the ground, and also because you have characters who don't reveal very uh, overtly their emotions, who kind of tend to keep them locked inside. You want to, my instinct at least, was to try to get as close as possible for, you know, try to, you want to try to dig out any kind of, knowing that any given flutter on a face, any sort of subtle look or change of expression is going to potentially, uh, in the context of this movie about very quiet people, is going to potentially be a very loud moment if you capture it. And so, um, so we wanted to be close for those moments. And then, you know, it's sort of about trying to make the wides count, you know, um, and uh, so whether that's, a wide in space where or the doorway, where we wanted to go really yeah. wide, yeah. Yeah. you know, uh, and and you know to the point where the capsule is sort of you know that big, or exactly, or filming through a doorway, yeah. or filming filming a house in such a way that you could kind of feel the distance emotionally between two people, so that it felt like space, even within a house. I think that those those became a little more deliberate. And in those close shots, what sort of a lens were you using? In other words, how close was the camera? I mean, were you holding well, we, back a little <coughs> bit, or were you right? We we were rarely on a uh, you know we we never wanted to uh, you know distort faces or anything so mm -hmm. we were never on a fisheye lens yeah. you know or anything less than a than a twenty or so I mean you, you, you usually would be in the thirties uh, lens wise but we but we'd uh, 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 but we'd also you know try to play a lot of the scenes just as as uh, kind of as uh, like play them as full scenes, you know, and uh, and then shoot them from another angle and shoot yep. them, you know. Uh, uh, but you know, so sometimes within a given take of the scene, it would go from very close to very wide, um, and so uh, so we shot a lot of it on zoom lenses yep. actually, just to kind of give us that that again that kind of instinctive freedom. You yep. see something on the corner of your eye, you zoom you out. Zoom in, yeah. Suddenly you see something happening up there that's really interesting, and you zoom in. Um, you know, for, for, for instances where we wanted to be really, really close or where we wanted to really kind of set the shot, we would use prime lenses. But, but um, I, I actually kind of grew up or sort of learned making films myself with, uh, you know, shooting documentaries, verite movies on 16 millimeter on zoom lenses. And so that's actually how we wound up shooting most of this movie was, was Super 16 and, and zoom lenses. And in those intimate scenes, two cameras or one? Um, I mean, obviously, it, sometimes it, it depended. One, I, tell, I, I think uh, it depended. I, I think uh, the very intimate stuff would be one. You know, uh, if you think of something like uh, the fight between um, Janet and Neil yeah. uh, when she's trying to get him to talk to his yeah. kids. You know, it'd be one camera. Uh, Neil hearing the news about Apollo One on the phone, be one camera. Neil alone in his office, one camera. So anything that was very intimate, where it felt emotionally sensitive, one camera. Um, anything that required, you know, or where we would want to capture multiple instances at the same time, for example, say them sitting at the dinner table when he's talking to the kids, yeah. you know, even though that's an intimate scene, yep. there was kind of, I wanted to try to capture any given facial moment we could at any given moment. So, so the, that'd be two cameras. And then, and then there were instances though, where we kind of went more whole hog, like something like mission control where we had every, you know, there, we kind of ran that almost as a stage play and we had four cameras going the whole time and every desk every flight controller at every desk had a full script, you know, uh, so that we didn't know where a camera would wind up at any given moment. We just knew that, okay, if once we say go, no matter where the camera goes, no matter who it is, no one's gonna be just mouthing, you know, uh, blah, 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 like, the, like you sometimes have, have extras do uh, in the background, because that extra might be, the you know, the, yeah. <laughs> the featured player, yeah. Yeah. Um, depending on where the camera wants to be. So, um, 
So our, our screenwriter had to write, you know, 50 additional pages <laughs> of uh, dialogue for that scene for like what amounts to four minutes of screen time. Yeah. But uh, just so that every single desk had um, something legitimate to be saying during the entirety of that uh, of that mission. Um, and so that we shot with four cameras. So it kind of varied. And can you talk about the, the choice to work on film, in particularly in that context where you've got to change roles, presumably. I mean, in other words, you're not like a like a um, uh, digital camera, able to just shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot, you must have yeah. stopped all the time to... Yeah. And how, I mean... Yeah, though, I mean, I, mean, I mean, for the most part, uh, we'd have pretty long mags, you know, yeah. if you're shooting 16 or 35 two perf, you know, you, yeah. we, we, we would tend to have 10-minute mags, yeah. which, uh, you know... Gave you a... Usually a is enough, yeah. also, especially yeah. when you have the handoff yeah. between cameras, you know, we'd always have a magazine ready, and if one ran, you know, the, the real... Uh, the real... Uh, the bummer was uh, IMAX, shooting IMAX because, um, uh, and, and I mean bummer in terms of the shooting of it because yeah. what you get back is so extraordinary and that's why you, you pay the price. But, um, but those are, uh, if I'm recalling correctly, two minute mags. Yeah. And uh, at least our first day when not everyone was entirely maybe versed on how to kind of load and reload, 16 minute reloads. Right. So you can imagine, yeah. and, and so we shot IMAX for the lunar sequence when yeah. they're on the moon. Um, so, you know, we shot it outside at a rock quarry um, at night with a giant light off in the distance simulating the sun. It was freezing. Um, you know, Ryan is in this ridiculous, you know, costume. I mean, this, you know, the, the moon suit. Um, and, uh, you know, with oxygen being pumped into it through oxygen tanks. And you sort of, and you can only communicate him via, with him via, head, you know, headpiece and, and earphone. And he's kind of coming down the ladder on, on ropes designed to help him simulate, you know, one-sixth G gravity. And he gets through, like, two rungs, and you're shooting, and then, <laughs> oh, reload. And it's, like, 16 minutes for a reload. And then it's like, okay, okay, Is he easy right. in the suit for the 16 and minutes? And action. Well, he'd maybe take the helmet off yeah. or something, but definitely you can never... The, getting in and out of the suit was about an hour. Yeah. So uh, that's how involved those suits were with yeah. the cooling tubes and everything. Yeah. So then it's like, okay, go again. It's like another few rungs. I mean, two minutes goes so fast. It's yeah. literally, it can take two minutes to just get a fucking slate sometimes. <laughs> and so it was just, it was so annoying. And, uh, and then it started snowing. Uh, <laughs> and it snowed for a week. We had to shut down for a week because it was Where the biggest, were you? I mean, What were you shooting on? You're, you're we were in Atlanta where it's yeah. not supposed to snow. Right. Apparently it does yeah, not yeah. snow in Atlanta. And this was the the a total anomaly. It was the biggest snowstorm they'd had in history when we were shooting the moon. Yeah, these motherfuckers. But uh, <laughs> but anyway, so so there was a little combo of things, um, and uh, so IMAX is not the most uh, user friendly in terms of uh, terms of uh, in terms of shooting it. I mean, if you're actually set up for a full IMAX film, you know, you you would want to have multiple cameras ready to go with multiple mags ready to go and an IMAX technician there at every moment. And, you know, so you'd be a little more set up for it. We just didn't have the budget for yeah. that. But we had, you know, just enough budget to squeeze out this one sequence on IMAX where we wanted to kind of give the audience a little that sense of, uh, especially after a mostly 16 millimeter film, yeah. the, that kind of, uh, kind of adrenaline rush of clarity that it felt like the astronauts themselves felt when they stepped on the lunar surface. So it was, and we got that, and you know, at the end. I mean, as soon as I got the dailies back, I was I was so enthused. Um, it, we were all just so overjoyed with how how it wound up looking. But um, you know, it, how long did it you wait for easy. dailies? I mean, in other words, did you see them the next day or the yeah yeah yeah? Well, I'm actually you know, it's because it's particular workflows. It yeah. was a little bit longer, two days or so. But yeah, okay, no, we're going to open this out in the minute to the audience. But mm. just one last question: the, the choice of um, 
1635, was that dictated by size or by... Yeah, the, I mean, 16 is what came first. I, I loved the archival material that the astronauts themselves... Super 16 or... Super 16, yeah. 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 Um, I loved the archival material that the astronauts themselves had shot in, yeah. in those capsules, which was uh, regular 16. And and and, um, and so loved that look so much. We wound up testing, you know, on that look with LED screens. Loved what it did to the LED. Yeah. You know, somehow the combo of kind of ultra-modern digital technology and then a very small gauge like yep. that was really exciting to us. So that became kind of the core look for us. And then it became about, you know, well, how do we match to this when we need to? Because sometimes it did feel, I remember we did a test where we went down to Cape Kennedy and shot a bunch of sort of wides of, say, the VAB building, you know, the giant building yep. where they constructed the Saturn rocket and the launch pads and the coast. And we shot all that stuff on 16. And I, ju I just didn't, it didn't feel like the, um, and I say this as, as a huge lover of 16, it didn't feel like it conveyed the grandeur. Uh, it felt like it made it a little vintage where I didn't want it to be vintage. So we went just kind of one step, you know, upward in terms of gauge to 35 to perf. Right. Um, uh, you know, sort of the grainiest you can have 35. And, and, uh, and we actually found, ironically, after test after test, that in many cases, the, the wides and the uber wides on the 35 to perf would match better to 16 close ups than 16 wide would match to 16 close-ups because you feel such a detriment the, uh, when you go the, wide yeah. on the 16, which sometimes, again, can be, for the right project, can be wonderful. I mean, I love that kind of, you know, uh, I love grain. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, uh, but here, yeah, it felt that we would sometimes mix and match a bit. So we wound up shooting, uh, you know, everything that's tight quarters, all the, the space capsule stuff, everything in the first part of the movie, a lot of the home stuff on 16. Bigger stuff, but still on the ground, like uh, NASA workplace stuff. Uh, launch pads would be uh, 35 to perf, and then IMAX on, on the moon. Right. So I'm sure there's lots of cleverer questions waiting for you. Um, and who would like to be the first? Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about your thoughts on the, the sound design? How, uh, how much of that was sort of pre-planned uh, going in? Because obviously this is a very personal film. We're, we're very much inside the capsules with them all. Uh, at all times, and the sound design, you know, really adds to that sort of, you know, analog uh, scariness, really, of, of this sort of exploration, this new frontier. Uh, the the uh, I think especially because I mean, I mean, I, I love playing with sound as a as a you know kind of tool in the arsenal, you know, but 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 especially I think once we kind of decided collectively that that okay, we're gonna we're gonna stay in the capsule for the majority of these missions. Um, you know, uh, you're only going to see a certain amount through the windows. Those are kind of a limited vantage point. So we knew sound would have to kind of three-dimensionalize that, that it would have to kind of complete the picture. So it kind of put an even bigger burden on sound, especially for those scenes. Um, but I was, I was really lucky, you know, to, to just have a, uh, I mean, in all aspects of the movie, but, you know, especially sound, to just have a tremendous team. Um, a few people who I'd worked with on, on La La Land, Eileen Lee, uh, sound effects uh, designer, and, and Millie, uh, uh, Morgan, who uh, 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 did all the um, well dialogue, but you know, in the case of sound design, it really wound up applying to you know all the sort of futzing of various comms and everything, anything involving people speaking. So Eileen was kind of working on anything that wasn't people speaking, kind of creaks and moans and thrusts and and explosions. Millie was working on the um, uh, everything involving human voices, and then and then two people who I hadn't worked with before, Frank Montana and uh, John Taylor. Um, uh, came on board as well, and and Frank is a giant space geek, which was great because he was he was revving from the you know moment go to do this, and and uh, immediately went off to like uh, 
I don't even know where, uh, you know, various museums and, re you know, kind of research centers in, in across the U.S. to get access to real space capsules, space suits, uh, you know, just take sounds of anything we might need, flicks of switches, uh, hiss of, 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 you know, oxygen through tubes. Um, he put mics and helmets, uh, you know, to just kind of uh, see, you know, Re reproduce the echoes and the various kind of futzing that would happen in those helmets. So everything like that he just went to town with and um, and at the same time I Ling was going to launch SpaceX launches and recording you know putting mics. Uh, SpaceX was very kind to let us basically put mics everywhere you know really sort of in close proximity to to, to, to all the different engines and, and, and thrusters and just kind of get a full spectrum of that. So we tried to kind of do a little bit of everything to get as close to the real thing as we could. Um, and then John Taylor was the sort of head mixer, mixing it all. Um, but, uh, but with all that real stuff, you still sometimes, at least I found myself wanting to even go a little further um, because you can't literally put an audience in the capsule and send it up to space. You want to try to do everything you can to give them that feeling. Um, so we, you know, we, we played around with a lot of out-of-the-box sounds that you wouldn't think would work that just to kind of... Uh, get under the skin and give a little bit of that, you know, that oomph or that extra scare that, that might be required. Um, and those would involve sometimes a lot of animal sounds, um, you know, a lot of uh, uh, lines roaring and, and uh, uh, wolves uh, growling. Where did that come from, that, the, the animal thought? I, mean. I, I, well, I have to take the blame for that. I, <laughs> I, I told Eileen to go for animal sounds, uh, especially because I was always so inspired by the story of... Um, the sound team on Raging Bull uh, layering in, uh, well, bulls and also horses yeah. uh, uh, um, uh, during the, uh, during yeah. the boxing yeah. matches, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and uh, well, I mean, that, that shouldn't work, yeah. and yet it, yeah, does, it does in yeah. such a beautiful, yeah. figurative way. Yeah. And so it it, 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 uh, it felt like something worth playing with. We did wind up going way further with it than I ever <laughs> than I ever would have thought, but I think I just liked it, and so I kept encouraging it, and Eileen would find these incredible sounds. And also, but again, it takes real skill, which, she has in spades of, 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 it's not just about throwing a, you know, a line roar on it. It's about finding a way for that to kind of be baked into the authentic sounds or mechanical sounds. And so it always became this mixture, this feathering in of sort of uh, animal and machine, human and, 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 uh, and non-human and, you know, real and fantastical, this kind of, that, that she created into this tapestry that I think helps it feel not just real, but hopefully immersive. Okay, let's have another question down here. And I'm going to try up the top, but you might have to speak loudly. I'll come to you next. Hi. Um, so I have a little question about uh, the framing of the lunar sequence, and um, obviously where you shot it on 70mm IMAX. I was just wondering, when you're actually shooting something like that, um, how do you approach the fact that ultimately audiences are going to see that sequence in three different aspect ratios? Does it affect how you work? or I mean, is there an element of compromise in terms of what you're, you're framing? It, it was my first time ever kind of, you know, uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, grappling with that. And it was, uh, um, it was interesting because, I, uh, I mean, essentially you wind up doing three different versions, you know. And, and um, so uh, at first we kind of, I mean, knowing that most, most viewings of the film would be in 240 the whole way through, you know, that was the version that we certainly began with and, and, and perfected first. And then... Um, and then when we were going in to do the various IMAX versions, uh, you know, which essentially there's two. I mean, you know that sometimes theaters will be in between, but essentially there's, you know, a version that can go up to 1.4 and one that will sort of cap out at 1.9. And um, uh, you just, uh, 
it, it was relatively simple for the most part because because we'd been thinking of that when we were shooting, you know, and and uh, also the moon is a little forgiving in that respect because there's so much negative space, you know. I mean, it's just a lot of black sky, <laughs> really, you know. So you can kind of it can be forgiving, but there were instances where um, you know there was one shot in particular, which is the shot as the camera is kind of roving up their shadows and kind of winds up. Um, uh, well, I guess there's two shots. One where it's roving by their shadows and another where it starts with a shadow and goes up to one of them scooping up uh, lunar soil that uh, uh, wound up being really silly when we actually, because you, would just, you just saw their feet the whole time. Uh, like what, what was a very enigmatic, I thought very beautiful abstract shadow shot in 2.4.0 became very silly looking shot of a dude just standing there, like <laughs> kind of like moving, like kind of not really moving, but moving, and, and very bad framing of his feet, because you're looking at his feet and not the shadow. And anyway, so we had to basically reframe that down, and then VFX had to actually extend the bottom part of the frame of the shadow a little bit, just to sort of complete that part of the picture. But that was pretty much the only shot composition where we had any kind of trouble due to the aspect ratios. Otherwise, we, otherwise it kind of netted out pretty, pretty well within a, within a few you know, degrees here and there. Um, but you do ideally want all three versions to be as good as the other. You got a question right at the back in the circle. Yeah, hi. Um, I'm just wondering about the um, for mainly the space shots and the flight shots. How you found the balance of the close-up then the release of the wide? Was that something that kind of balanced something you had a clear vision of beforehand, or is that something that took a while to find when you're editing? Because you have those beautiful moments where we're very close, and then suddenly we get the we get a wide of the ship. And I, the edge of the earth. I think uh, certainly very very early on, I, I kind of knew I wanted to try to do stuff like that, like sort of uh, uh, keep the audience in a really almost uncomfortably close world for longer than they would even normally be used to, and then almost as though it's a release of you know as though the the canister can't contain the pressure anymore, it bursts open, and then goes straight to a super wide. And I also liked that contrast of. We tried not to do too many medium wides in the movie, that it was sort of like either we were going to be inside the capsule or, or if we were outside mounted to the capsule, so you're really in that universe of the astronauts, or we were going to be, uh, you know, thousands of miles away looking, you know, kind of at just the vast expanse of space and the capsule would be this small. And so um, that was kind of part of the thinking at the outset, but, uh, and, and, and all the space sequences were storyboarded and, and um, I sort of worked with an editor to kind of put them together into little kind of animatics set to music and just to sort of get a sense of how they would flow before we even shot them. So, um, so a lot of that stuff was there at the beginning. That said, I think it was definitely, as with every movie I've done, m my editor and I, t Tom Cross and I, found when, when in the editing room together that, you know, um, you know, I don't know, a half maybe of, of the sort of ideas I'd had beforehand translated well into the final result and then the other half had to be rethought so um, so there was definitely a lot of experimenting and 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 rejiggering of stuff um, uh, including that those kind of moves from close to wide uh, in the in the edit but the idea at least was there at the outset so we can probably do two more questions one down the front here sorry and who's going to do the last question anybody okay, yeah okay I just did one up there okay sorry uh, but this one here and then that one up there bullied into the circle again. Um, hi, Damien. Um, congratulations. Uh, I loved the film. You've got a hat trick, mate. You're, you're killing it. It was really good. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, my question is, um, I'm fascinated by 
the research side of things in this instance because it's based on real life and I can't imagine how you must have felt going through this process. But I, what, what has the community of people who are involved, what's their response been? And can you describe your process in showing them for the first time and, and how they fe have felt about it? Yeah, it, it was... Um I mean, we were, or I was, but really all of us were, were you know, mindful and, and often very worried <laughs> at the outset, you know, of just uh, uh, how those people would feel. And, and um, I'd say especially, you know, when it comes to people who are seeing themselves in the film, you know. Uh, we worked a lot, for instance, with Neil's kids, uh, uh, who are no longer kids, but uh, Rick and Mark Armstrong, uh, who were tremendously helpful to us and really opened their doors. and. And through them, we got to sit with Janet Armstrong uh, uh, for uh, uh, for a lot of time as well, and just uh, uh, getting to hear their stories and their side of things. I mean, that kind of informed so much of what we were doing that we, you know, certainly hoped that um, they would feel that reflected back uh, in what they saw. Um, but any of those individuals who we were kind of uh, uh, leaning on right from the outset, we tried to. Uh, again, because I think we really valued their feedback, we, you know, we sent them drafts of the script and would listen to what they had to say to that. Um, uh, Rick and Mark came to set a few times. Some of the other former astronauts came to set as well. Um, and, uh, and then also a bunch of them we tried to show cuts of the film before, you know, when there was still time to make changes. And actually a lot of changes resulted from, you know, very kind of welcome changes just from inaccuracies they would catch, you know, uh, sometimes technical things, sometimes little personal details, uh, but things that we could still fix. Um, so but to try to kind of keep gauging their, their reactions through the process just for accuracy, if nothing else, was, was important. Um, and uh, so, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, the, the end result of all that has been certainly very, very positive. It's been, it's been uh, uh, um, they, they, they've seemed to really um, appreciate the, the film and, and, you know, uh, uh, take it as a, you know, accurate or, or at least trying to be accurate, faithful uh, reflection of what they remembered. Last promise question from the circle and then we'll have to stop with so many questions I'm sure we'll want to ask. Yes. Hi. That was fabulous. Thank you. Um, my dad was a fighter pilot. He flew the Starfighter, which they called the Widowmaker. He flew wow, with Neil yeah. Armstrong. He flew with Chuck Yeager. Wow. And my first home was Edwards Air Force Base. And so oh, I grew up amazing. in that that's, culture. That's where we, we shot at Edwards. It was I know. an amazing place. Yeah, I know. So I grew up, <laughs> I grew up like <laughs> Neil's kids did. The same thing. And with people falling out of the sky all the time. And, you know, my friends' dads died a lot. That was just a part of growing up yeah. for me. So my question to you, first of all, I want to say, like, there was so much authenticity in that, and which I really appreciated. Oh, and my dad's 89 now, and I'm going to take him to the film because oh, wow, he's going to love it. He's going to be, he's not going to criticize the flying parts, <laughs> which is unusual. <laughs> but my question for you is, um, when um, Neil's son asked him if he was going to come home, for me, that was like the only not authentic part because as kids, we would never ever have asked that question. Mm -hmm. and, and that's when we're, we probably, I probably knew more pilots that died than Neil's kids did. Mm -hmm. And nobody on the base ever did. We didn't, you didn't talk, well, it's not that you didn't talk about it, it's that you didn't think 
that would ever happen to your dad because, yeah, sometimes they die, but your dad's the best pilot in the world, so he's not yeah. going to, he'll be fine. So I wondered if that really happened. Yeah, the, because, uh, yeah, and, and I really, uh, 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 certainly everything that um, all the kind of research that, that, um, Josh and I did certainly attest to exactly what you're saying, that there was this, it was sort of fascinating to us, that there was this kind of, um, especially among all the kids of the astronauts that we talked to, you know, now, now grown kids, this kind of, uh, the normalcy of life, they were able to kind of, uh, as they remembered it, given such, such you know, risks that their parents were, were going on. Um, it, uh, which I think in many ways makes you know probably that conversation even more of an anomaly. It is a conversation that uh, that happened, um, and uh, essentially it actually wasn't in the original draft of the script. And what happened was uh, when meeting with Rick and Mark um, and talking with them more about uh, their experiences, because it, it was mentioned in the book, but very much in passing, we sort of kept nudging like, well, so was there actually a talk like this? And and it turned out that there was very much a uh, uh, as you see in the film, you know, starting with Janet insisting to Neil that he talk to his kids, uh, not just about the fact that he was going away, but about the fact that he might not come back, that he actually, that, that it actually become very apparent to the kids, um, him not wanting to do it, uh, but finally, after being sort of uh, uh, demanded to, finally, uh, uh, reluctantly agreeing to, very reluctantly, uh, sitting Rick and Mark down at this dinner table that they remembered never using except for like Thanksgiving. So they knew as soon as they were sitting down, they remembered actually thinking, being afraid, not because their dad was going to die at first, but because they thought they were in deep trouble because there was the only reason they'd be sitting at this table. Um, and then their dad launching into, you know, well, here's what I'm doing, yada, yada, and, and actually going through uh, going through the fact that he might not come back. And, and certainly I think Mark, the youngest, was, was not at all cognizant of any risks. I think Rick was just old enough, uh, and, and it was his recollections that we took verbatim for a lot of the scene, was just old enough to, to uh, I think, still have faith that his dad was going to come home, but, but you know, uh, be at least cognizant of the fact that, that, that there had to be some kind of risk computation there that he just hoped his dad was confident in. Um, and so I was really interested in that weird, you know, that weird uh, uh, sort of unspoken disconnect maybe there where, where, where um, he could speak to something, both Neil and his son could speak to something directly, very bluntly, that, that would be so chilling to me as a kid. And yet it is true, uh, uh, and maybe this you know, speaks again to what you were saying, that uh, Rick and Mark, uh, as they describe it in their memories, after that conversation that went down very much as you see it in the film, somehow, I wouldn't have this reaction, somehow felt completely fine, felt completely safe and, and, and faithful that their dad would come home. So they didn't have sleepless nights. They didn't, um, even though their dad had, according to them, been incredibly honest and forthright about the fact that there was a chance he wasn't coming home. So I, I still actually, have a hard time even fathoming how how that worked, that combo of honesty and utter faith. But I think it's one of those things that you know had to, and maybe it was the case in your family as well, had to have uh, helped these families get through what you know I think I would have crumpled at. So. Well, I'm writing about it right now for my next film, so you can oh, wow. come watch that. <laughs> Thank you. I would Star love to. Starfighter baby. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, Thank for you. that, that last was question. fabulous. Damien Thank Giselle. you. Thanks so much. We're all going to get a drink here if you've got five minutes to stay on, I'm sure.